All right. And we're back. So it's 6 a.m., late start today. So picking up where we left off, last time I was talking about 1991, everything kind of culminating in grunge becoming um, a thing. So what does that actually mean is, you know, a kind of a good question. So um, my barometer for what was at least musically popular at the time is mostly centered around MTV. Um, at the time, MTV was, you know, a big influencer and, you know, tastemaker, if you will, uh, in music. And they definitely seemed to hold the keys of determining what genres were going to work and which ones weren't. So at this time, they gravitated towards, um, you know, pop type stuff. And we were seeing a shift to finally having, you know, between the what I remember as... Uh, Guns N' Roses come back, Metallica kind of breaking out, and Nirvana seemingly coming out of nowhere with, you know, shifting towards some version of rock. So all three of these bands are going to be representing like three sub-genres under rock umbrella somewhere, right? We got Metallica representing metal. Um, definitely the Black Album was, you know, a departure from like the kind of, I guess, the roots, if you will, of thrash. But definitely metal, right? The, it just sounded harsher than a lot of those stuff. Guns N' Roses with hard rock uh, making you know, a comeback, if you will. And Nirvana pretty much taking the indie alternative type sound, making it kind of a little bit more aggressive, and breaking out with you know, Smells Like Team Spirit specifically. So here we have this big change, and the change was... It's hard to explain how it was everywhere, but like the best way I can explain it is like people started dressing differently because of Nirvana. So there was definitely a distinct anti look, if you will, with um, you know, the with the grunge scene. So it wasn't just Nirvana. Shortly thereafter, a bunch of other bands started breaking. A lot of them from the Seattle area, but others definitely followed suit from other scenes across the country. And you know, the look was more or less, you know doesn't matter, I guess, is the best way to explain it. You know, these guys, you know, the stereotype is, you know, flannel shirts and, you know, it doesn't really matter what kind of pants you have on. Your t-shirt is not particularly clean, necessarily. Dudes are smoking cigarettes on stage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is kind of how things change. Like, you know, like, honestly, like, people were, as stupid as it sounds, people are starting to grow their hair out to look cool and wearing flannel shirts, un, un, unbuttoned, etc. So that's kind of like the main shift here as far as kind of like, I don't know, popular world is concerned. But as far as like the musical part goes, there's a handful of things that um, kind of stand out to me. So one of them was that, you know, the previous kind of like big wave of rock-related things is was, you know, the L.A. hair metal scene. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be hair metal, but, you know, everything from Van Halen through the cheesier bands like Slaughter, etc. Whereas, you know, the, these folks, these dudes that were, you know, oh, band just taking a shit. Do I end here? No, no, no. We'll keep going. All right. So where these dudes were wearing makeup, perming their hair, hairspray, lipstick, you know, um, you know, super extremes like Twisted Sister where they were got like pseudo costumes on, not quite to the level of Kiss, but definitely looks like a cartoon more than a human at that point. And that was one aspect of it. So the fact that like the Nirvana and 
uh, I guess the Metallica guys as well, you know, they all dressed in black, but like it just definitely changed, you know, the, the look of the current kind of like popular wave of music um, started becoming more accessible thing. I think that's one of the aspects that people gravitated towards and kind of um, were able to relate with is like these dudes didn't actually look very different than you. It's just a guy up there. I remember like seeing like early Pearl Jam videos and you got Mike McCready with like a sweater wrapped around his waist and a t-shirt and just jeans. And it's just like, oh, I've seen that guy at the supermarket, right? Versus previously you'd see somebody like Sebastian Bach, you know, massive mane of hair, you know, leather, you know, some of the other guys had like, you know, weird, like spiky things on them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, makeup and fishnets, like just kind of like, there was a rock star look, but now the folk, the dudes that were kind of becoming the new rock stars in the world looked like you and me, like, and, or if they didn't look like you and me, you could look like them. It didn't even matter where you shopped. You can get a flannel shirt at the Gap if you wanted to. You can get one at the thrift store. It didn't fucking matter. Like, you could look like these guys, and I think that's something that um, contributed to it catching on. So, then... Another aspect of it, I think, is just the musicality of it all. So one of the things that, um, you know, definitely defined some of the later, you know, 80s metal stuff was guitar virtuosoness, right? You had these guys that were coming out, you know, I think like, you know, it had Eddie Van Halen, obviously revolutionized the instrument, played it like nobody else. And Randy Rhodes with Ozzy, um, just another virtuoso and on and on and on and on and on. And there's these like, you know, the guitar players are essentially gunslingers. Some of these guys just absolutely fucking destroyed. Even the guys that you don't necessarily hear based on what their band's, you know, forte is like put them in a room without like their band and be like, Hey, do something crazy. And they could. So there was a virtuosity to it. And, you know, it was not necessarily, like approachable to a certain extent where like I can't play like Randy Rhodes. You hear, you know, the solo to Crazy Train or the the outro to Mr. Crowley and you're like, yo, that's like a life goal to be able to do that. Um, nowadays there's like seven year old kids on YouTube that can do it. But back then it was just like, I can't do that. Even with Metallica, Kirk's not the most technically gifted guitar player in the world, but like, hey, he's playing super fast solos, uh, employing techniques that you know, seem advanced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, out of your, out of your league, right? But then you get with, like, some of the grunge stuff going on, and yes, some of these guys are awesome musicians, right? Like, the guys from Pearl Jam can play, et cetera, et cetera, but by and large, you didn't necessarily, like, gravitate towards a guitar solo, right? Like, it wasn't like a Guns N' Roses, Metallica, you know, or Megadeth song, et cetera, where it was all about, like, you know, let's kill time until the guy starts ripping and then you have the two-minute guitar solo and, you know, your jaw hits the floor and you're stoked, right? These were actually, you know, almost, you know, Beatles songs on crack, right? It was, they're kind of sort of pop, angry-ass pop songs, right? Like, listen to any Nirvana song, you know? I'm not saying Kirk sucks at guitar, but if you hear that as a kid, you know, similar like Team Spirit's predominantly four notes, right? You can do that. You're kind of going back slightly to the three chord punk Ramones kind of vibe. And that was another approachable thing. The songs weren't long, they weren't complicated, and it sounded like something you could do if you could convince your mom to buy you a guitar. So those two things really kind of stuck to 
me, at least me and my friends, was just like, hey, these guys don't look like superheroes. And you know, if I try hard enough, I think I could do that. So those are two aspects that I think really kind of helped to take off. So, anyway, so that's that. And then following the kind of explosion of the um, grunge thing, uh, specifically with Smells Like Teen Spirit, we had a massive amount of other, you know, rock-based acts starting to kind of fill the airwaves. And again, my barometer here is MTV, right? Is MTV went from having Paula Abdul and some other, like some old-ass Dire Straits video on, or, you know, another Sir Mix-a-Lot song to, you know, now the Chili Peppers are coming. Oh, Rage Against the Machine. You know, like lots and lots of acts were topping, like the, the top 10 charts of the day or they had this top 10 countdown on a daily basis. And it was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of bands were rock-based acts. So there was a shift in MTV decided that they were going to index on the neighborhood of rock. And, you know, that was a big difference as, you know, they were the tastemakers of the days. Many years later, you know, they would decide that, like, you know, the West Coast, East Coast hip-hop thing was a thing. And all of a sudden, everyone's listening to Snoop and Dre, right? So they get to kind of set the tone. And they helped set the tone towards rock. So personally, at this time, I was more or less going with the flow, you know, um, starting to listen to, you know, the usual suspects, if you will. But um, the main thing that kind of stuck with me is Metallica, because they weren't a new band necessarily. Guns N' Roses wasn't either. But the big thing that set them apart, and, you know, for me at least, was Guns N' Roses didn't have a big back catalog. They had Usage 1 and 2, Lies You Could Skip, because it was an acoustic album, Patience like the only song worth listening to, skip it. Then you find Appetite, it's a fucking classic, it's a fantastic album, but that's it. So you had three actual albums to listen to, Usage 1 and 2 should have actually just been one awesome album instead of two pretty good ones. But Metallica, on the other hand, the Black Album was preceded by Injustice for All, The Master of Puppets before that. Ride the Lightning, and then kill them all. Somewhere in the middle of this Garage Days, which was impossible to find at the time. But they had a big back catalog. So as far as being a teenager, an early teen, um, starting to kind of look into this stuff, Metallica was an easy place to go because you knew where to dig. Just go to the record store, look in the, the M's, go to Metallica, and there's a bunch of album covers you haven't seen before. And as far as a 12-year-old kid's going, it goes, they're fucking intriguing, right? Ride the Lightning has an electric chair on it. Master Puppets has gravestones on it. And Justice for All, it's like, you know, Statue of Liberty's crumbling. Like, what's going on here? Kill 'em All has a blood splatter on it. Um, remember my dad being like, are you sure you want to buy that? You know, he's the chillest guy in the world. And the one time he tried to do, like, uh, like an NC-17 on me, like, was with a Metallica's Kill 'em All album. So... Metallica is kind of where I went. So definitely didn't become uh, like a devotee metalhead, but I definitely began exploring heavy metal and that became kind of like what I was primarily listening to. Definitely still, you know, wasn't anti listening to Pearl Jam or Soundgarden, any of the other stuff that was coming up. But I really, really started gravitating towards metal um, for a secondary reason of I had this buddy, Fernando, who'd gotten into this stuff via his cousins. So his cousins didn't 
feed him Duran Duran and Beastie Boys, they fed him Metallica. So he introduced me to a ton of other stuff like Megadeth and Testament and Exodus and, you know, Ozzy, you know, and then before that, even, you know, Black Sabbath, blah, 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 blah. So now all of a sudden I have a growing catalog of metal cassettes and a massive list of bands to explore. Whereas with the Guns N' Roses thing, like there's nothing else really like them or I never found anything else like them at the time. Um, and then all the alternative, if you will, or grunge stuff was freely available as radio and MTV were pumping it. So I had these three kind of camps. I kind of exclude Guns N' Roses. Don't really think there's ever been a hard rock band like them. If you want to kind of like explore the Guns N' Roses thing, you kind of almost going back to like ACDC and Aerosmith and stuff like that anyways, which kind of, you know, crosses a generational gap. So whatever, I got into fucking metal. And as I got into metal, um, the edgier and edgier, edgier stuff stood out. Remember, I'm 12, I'm 13 at this point. So when I hear of a band named Slayer, I'm like, they're called fucking Slayer? What is this? They have a song named Dead Skin Mask? What is this, right? So Hell Awaits, all these other song titles and album titles, you know, like Raining Blood. You're like, holy shit, what's going on? And then somebody drops it on you. You're like, dude, they're satanic. You're like, what the fuck? They're satanic? This is awesome. So you start going down this rabbit hole. So we started looking into like what bands are satanic. And then, you know, you end up on Merciful Fate and, uh, you know, King Diamond solo stuff. Abigail was a big fucking album we list, we loved. And it was just all the types of like stuff that like a kid starts enjoying, right? It's like provocative. You're like, oh, these guys are talking about Satan and war, etc. It's like, a massive departure from Brian Adams singing about Robin Hood falling in love, right? It was super interesting, super cool. And then, yeah, there's just so much of it. There's like, you know, the new wave of British heavy metal stuff that you can get into of like, of course, made in, you know, at the time, um, you know, Rob Halford ended up starting a new band called Fight. So then you they listen to them, then, you know, look into the old Rob Halford stuff, and you're like, oh my god, there's so much going on, so we got into metal with, like, a small bent towards the evil sadistic stuff and the satanic stuff, and that was fun, and developed kind of sort of, like, an edge, if you will, so you kind of go from about a year ago, I'm listening to Sir Mix-a-Lot, to all of a sudden, I'm listening to Obituary and Deicide and Slayer, and what's resonating with me in my head isn't necessarily because I want to destroy the world, but, you know, you hear songs about people hating God and, you know, fuck religion and, like, all this kind of stuff. And it starts making you think, right? But then Baby got back and, like, you know, the booty, like, didn't really resonate. Yeah, at the time, you know, it's a pop song. It's catchy. You know, you tap your foot to it. You're into it. But now I had musical content that was starting to make me think a little bit so some of it more than others right some of it's just for show like all the king diamond satanic shit it's just show but you're starting to think about it it's interesting it's fun it's weird right it's different your mom hates it all these reasons to kind of get into it then you start listening to some of the iron maiden stuff where he's you got songs about the native americans land being stolen right and that's kind of one of the things that ended up really, really hooking me was between that and like, you know, Master of Puppets, James is singing about like drug addiction and stuff like that. It was starting to make me think. Whereas previously, before grunge, before 
all this kind of stuff. You know, it was like love songs and like party fun stuff. Like, so that's kind of the theme here and kind of starts digging into like one of the reasons I hate EDM and techno was what I found super appealing was shit that made me think. And initially, yes, it sounds funny that like Metallica and Megadeth, like, you know, Countdown to Extinction, a Megadeth album, they won like a award for animal conservation because they have songs about people trophy hunting. And you're just a kid listening to this. Never fucking thought about this before. Now you're thinking. Like, huh. Got to reevaluate some of this stuff that's going on. Like, yeah, these guys are singing about terrible things that happened during war. Never really thought about that. I just had a toy gun and I thought it was fun because it squirted water. Right? Or, you know, like, drugs. I've heard of them, but I've never... You know, Requiem from a Dream wasn't a movie we watched when we were 12. Right? So, just, like, hearing these songs about how these capture them, like... You know, you've seen a million, like, Cowboys and Indians things, but now you have Iron Maiden telling you a story in song form about what happened to this whole community, this whole nation, if you will, right? And it started to make me think. And that's why I stayed in this kind of world, was particularly, like, it, like happy about being challenged, like, as far as thought was concerned. Things that were seemingly normal. That maybe in the back of my mind, like, I don't know if I was like, you know, had, you know, latent rebellion in me or not, but it started breeding that. I started questioning things because I was exposed to these topics. And that's kind of a huge contributing factor to kind of where I went uh, musically. So that's where we are now. So this is around 1992 or so. I'm listening to a bunch of metal. I'm starting to think. I'm not quite exactly there yet, but like, I'm open to it. Like the gateway has opened and I'm like, you know, receptive to information flowing in. So that's that. Banjo took a shit about 10 minutes ago. We went a little bit over. And next episode, I'm going to talk about my first love and stay tuned for that.